This episode of the Weekly Standard Podcast is sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses brings the world's greatest professors to your fingertips with more than 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, better living, and more. The Great Courses are available on digital download and streaming or DVD and CD. Best of all, you can listen to or watch The Great Courses at your own pace without the pressure of homework or exams. And now, for a limited time only... The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of up to 80% off the original price of selected courses, including the Decisive Battles of World History. For this limited time 80% offer, please go to thegreatcourses.com slash WS to find out more. That's thegreatcourses.com slash WS. Welcome to the Weekly Standard Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham, the special late night edition. Bill Crystal has just watched the president's speech. And let's face it, Bill, you and I watched it on behalf of the 305 million Americans who won't. What did we see? You know, I, I, I tweeted ahead of time that people should feel free not to watch it. I encourage them not to watch it. I, I, I suggested a Churchill speech they could listen to from June 18, 1940, if they wanted to be inspired instead of depressed. Uh, Mark Hemingway from our office, uh, I then wrote another tweet about how they should, people should go see American Sniper instead of watching the State of the Union. And in fact, Mark Hemingway, my colleague, did that. So um, nonetheless, as you say, uh, we have to do our duty here. And uh, I, I suffered through it, more or less. Uh, attention, uh, losing, it, losing uh, I wasn't wrapped, wasn't with rapt attention throughout. But um, I don't know, it's not, I, didn't, I didn't like it. I, I, I think this is... I guess I thought at one point, you know, this is why people like me came to Washington 30 years ago as conservatives. Uh, we came to fight against, really, a kind of degeneration of modern democracy into a kind of welfare state that just becomes a nanny state where you buy off different constituencies and pander to them in, in really silly and sort of superficial and often trivial ways. It all adds up in terms of cost, of course and really sort of demeans democracy, almost, I would say. And so the pandering and the, and the buying off of constituencies and the demagoguery, and I thought to myself, you know, this is what conservatism was supposed to fight, and we did fight. I thought we were pretty successful in fighting it for a while, and then we suffered some defeats, and now we're going to have to, we certainly have to fight it all over again and, and fight it in Congress for the next two years and then fight it, hopefully have a president who can roll some of this back in 2017. Because it does, I think it does damage to the country to have a president to give a speech like that. No sense of serious national purpose or national debate or what the country stands for. It's just, you know, promising things to different groups. You know, uh, one thing I'll say is, uh, as a guy who used to run campaigns is he has made the point clear, I think, for Republicans that you can't beat something with nothing. And if you're going to come at me with nothing other than I oppose the stuff Obama's giving away, you're going to be playing right into the President Obama's hands. I felt the, uh, he did do an effective job of shifting the burden onto the GOP. Look, you got an idea for the middle class? Let's hear it. I, I totally agree with that. And I think, in fact, Obama's numbers have come up a little bit in the last month, because he has been on the offensive, he's doing things. People may not be sure if they're good things or bad things, but he seems to be doing something, trying to do something. And Republicans have, you know, are playing a prevent defense, like in the first quarter. I mean, it's like the Green Bay Packers, but much worse, because they don't even have a lead, much of a lead. And, and as I say, it's understandable, it turned out to be foolish to start uh, becoming extremely cautious with a few, you know, five minutes left in the game. But um, it's another thing to, to do that as I say, in the first quarter of the game, 
uh, right at the beginning of this Republican Congress. I mean, the idea that they're obsessing on the Keystone Pipeline, which I'm for, but pass aside, it's the right thing to do. It not, does not produce that many jobs. It's good energy policy. It's good government policy. It's the right thing to do for our neighbor Canada but and for ourselves. But, you know, this notion that that's like the centerpiece of the Republican agenda is really kind of embarrassing. And the Republicans need to have a strong economic agenda, a strong middle class agenda, obviously a middle American agenda. Uh, and they don't. Now they will. The president has one advantage here, which is timing. You know, he has a whole administration working towards the State of the Union. OMB's developing all these programs and so forth. Whereas the um, the uh, sorry, just turning off my cell phone there. The um, uh, the Republicans have a whole Congress to work through. They just got to get themselves organized. So in a way, you know, Paul Ryan may have a good tax plan in three or four months, but they can't unveil it now. So the president has a little bit of a structural example advantage now, which I wouldn't, you know, which will evaporate a bit over time. But I agree with you. Republicans need to go on the offense, and they need to send him bills that he can that he will veto, and clarify the differences between the two parties, and show how Republican policies really do help people, and help them by getting government off their backs, as opposed to the president's offer of more and more government uh, handouts. Well, I'll say that my surprise is I was expecting to be bored by this speech, and there was pl and not because it's even President Obama. I mean, let's face it, State of the Union addresses are right. rarely memorable. But I wasn't as bored as I was uh, alternatively angry and saddened. I was mm -hmm. saddened by the president talking about who he was when he gave that speech in Boston in uh, 2004 and, you know, and his message of unity at the time. And, you know, you just think about the potential he had then. If you had told somebody one day he's going to be president, he's going to be one of the most divisive presidents Americans ever had. He's going to govern explicitly from a narrow base, not even try to reach across political or uh, or cultural uh, aisles. Uh, people would have said, no, not him. Look, listen to him. He's Mr. Unity. And then the nausea set in as I watched him congratulate himself for the terrific job he's done as a nonpartisan, open, <laughs> reach out, non-petty leader. And he actually had this whimsical tone, Bill, of how did we get to this point where everybody's so divided? How do we get to this point where we're talking about petty things and all this name calling from the guy whose administration did something I've never done before, calling out donors to his opponents by name and criticizing them and having his IRS go after citizens organizing against him. It was just uh, sh shocking and saddening at the same time. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. And he did refer back to the 2004 speech, and I had some of the same thoughts. And, um, I mean, I never had great hopes for President Obama or for candidate Obama, but I, I had some hopes, and I, and I have been disappointed in that, especially in some of the, leave aside the policies, and as you say, some of the tone, some of the way in which he's conducted politics. Uh, and that is not been good for the political system. Um, I mean, race relations, I thought, would improve. You know, I thought finally, you know, the African-American president, really, that really should help uh, finally resolve this terrible wound that has bedeviled America since its beginning. And I'm afraid he hasn't improved them. And at times, he, he and especially Eric Holder have demagogued them in ways that have made them worse. So, uh, no, and, and then other parts of it did anger me. I, it, uh, as I was saying before, it's not good for our politics to have this kind of just just flat out pandering. But look, I also think this is what contemporary liberal Democrats do. And I very much agree with what you said. It's, it's the burden is on Republicans and they need to, 
stop whining about, as maybe even people would say I've been doing, President Obama, <laughs> and, and get about having a governing agenda which can appeal to people, to real people. It's not, it's not too abstract. It's not too sort of theoretical, uh, but not in a way that tries to buy their votes, but tries to say this is our vision of how a self-governing country can, can run itself, how a free market economy can benefit all of our, all, all people here, the rules of the road we want to lay down. And uh, Republicans have just not done a good job of doing that, obviously, in the last several years. You know, one of the complaints that Bill Clinton had is, you know, he kind of bemoaned the fact that he was not president during a time of great challenge. You know, he didn't have, you know, uh, an economic collapse or 9-11, and he thought he could have been the president to rise to that. And I thought about that as I listened to the president mention al-Qaeda tonight. Uh, How many times, Bill? I I, I lost count. Yeah, right. The first speech since since 9-11 that did not use the words al-Qaeda, so... But but ironically, not using the words Al Qaeda now, while Al Qaeda is spreading and growing, while ISIS is spreading and growing, he actually even said that his policies regarding ISIS were working, even after we had headlines this week, policies against ISIS not working. And why wouldn't, if you want to be president, why wouldn't you seize that topic? National security and our foreign policy and Americans beheaded abroad and our allies having you know deaths occurring in downtown Paris. Why wouldn't, how did he give that speech tonight without focusing on that? Well, his whole thesis as president has been that we've got to get out of these wars and really get out of that kind of engagement in the world, do the minimal amount we can do, we, we have to do to kind of keep the uh, the enemy at bay, perhaps, but um, just nothing serious about our global responsibilities, and we're paying a terrible price for that now. The first few years of his presidency, um, you know, he, he started the retreat, but we don't, you don't pay a price until it's been going for a while, and now we're really paying a price. Um, and he's, you know, you know, just avoiding addressing that, obviously. And I do think that's it. Look, reality catches up. And I think especially in foreign policy, reality has caught up. And no one watching that speech is going to be convinced otherwise. And people are going to, you know, go online or turn on their TVs tomorrow and look at what's happening around the world. And this is, you know, the hashtag diplomacy that that stopped Boko Haram slaughtering thousands of people after all that nice bring our girls, you know, back uh, uh, hashtag stuff and Michelle Obama, you know, urging everyone to tweet that out. I mean, it was, it's it's just embarrassing. James Taylor in Paris. I mean, I really do think that is the lasting. That people will remember James Taylor in Paris more from this month than President Obama's speech. I think. I agree, and uh, surprisingly, he didn't mention, as he has in the past, the great successes our policies are having in Somalia and Yemen. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, that was right. His more his recent example. Yeah, I mean, it really is. Terrible, and it's dangerous. In two more years, you know, it really that really worries me about the country because there's a limit to what the Republican Congress can do. They can increase defense spending some, and they should. They can try to block an Iran, a bad Iran deal, though that will be hard since I think Obama looks like he's got most of the Democrats intimidated and back mostly into not passing a new sanctions bill. So um, I think that's really you know the domestic policy stuff is infuriating to people like us. I think it's bad for the country. I think we pay a real price for it at home. But ultimately, that could be fixed, and the cost will be a couple of years of slower economic growth and, and some erosion of the limits of government, but maybe we can reestablish those limits abroad once things go downhill. You know, once Iran gets, gets nuclear weapons, we've got the greatest president in the world in 2017, and it's very hard for him to put that toothpaste back in the tube. And the same if ISIS controls tens of thousands of miles in the Middle East, as I think of all the people who've been killed. So I really, um, foreign policy stuff over the next, uh, prospects of the next two years really are worrisome. Uh, one last thing, and this is all about the 
the pre president as a, as a guy. Uh, my my uh, concern about President Obama is I think he is uh, the most unusual person to ever be president when it comes to the country. He just has so little in common with the average typical person, you know, the academic background, et cetera, et cetera. And man, you saw a flash of the, I think, the real Obama tonight when he mentioned, this is my last campaign and some, uh, and let's admit it, not polite Republican, I don't know who, started clapping. And then everyone laughed. And when everyone laughed, the way the president's head just snapped back around where the applause came from, and he spat out in anger, yeah, because I won both times. Now, I really think that is when people ask, I don't understand, why isn't he acknowledging the elections that he lost? Why isn't he trying to compromise? I really believe that there is no room in his vision of himself for anyone else. He really is that focused on it's got to be about him. It's got to be about building this image he has himself and the icon of leadership that he's building to himself. And to have people laugh at that, that you rarely see President Obama angry. I think we saw it tonight. Yeah, no, I think that that's a very good point and an interesting point. And I was struck by that in a different way right at the beginning of the speech where he says, well, you know, uh, tonight we turn a page, you know. I mean, think about that metaphor for a minute. I mean, it's as if we just get to the side. We're reading a novel, and, you know, if we finish the page, or maybe we got bored with the page, so we're just going to turn the page. You know, that's not how the world works. The world is out there. We've got to deal with it. And uh, President Obama's always had this attitude of, you know, we can just declare the war is over in Iraq and Afghanistan. We can just declare that al-Qaeda has been decimated or diminished. We can just declare all kinds of other things to be, uh, happening, even if they're not happening, and that's very dangerous. And I, I think it's important that the country not fall into that trap. I mean, uh, it's, what, it's bad enough to have a president who's engaged in kind of wishful thinking. And I think wishful thinking is related to the kind of egotism that you're talking about. You know, it's about him and what he wants to do and what he would like the narrative of his presidency to be like. It's not about actually dealing with the world as it is. And it's important that the country realize, at least, and the Republicans help the country realize we've got to deal with the world as it is. Uh, Bill Crystal, thanks for us helping us deal with the State of the Union as it is at this late <laughs> hour. We appreciate you joining us for the podcast. Hey, thanks, Michael. You've been listening to the Weekly Standard Podcast. Please be sure to check weeklystandard.com regularly for podcast updates. I'm your host, Michael Graham.